Welcome to Zooming In, a project of the Unpopulist. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. We turn now to the Unpopulist's Editor's Roundtable, where I'm joined by Sheikh Adalmia and Tom Scholl to discuss the issues we've been thinking about recently. And I will take the moderator's prerogative to go first. I have been paying a lot of attention lately to the debates around trans rights, and particularly the way that much of the right has weaponized worries about the rise of left-wing cultural preferences as a way to attack in, in often very vicious ways and often through legislative changes this rather marginalized and persecuted community. And it's been frustrating seeing, as someone who remembers the, the debates about gay marriage, seeing people who ought to recognize the parallels between those debates parroting a lot of the same arguments against trans people that they rightly rejected against the acceptance of homosexuality and eventually gay marriage 10, 15 years ago. And in particular, I see this as taking kind of two forms. The first is an unwillingness to admit the source of their, call it anxiety, about the growing, or at least for a time growing, acceptance of, of transgender rights and trans identities. And this plays out in how they talk about what they're worried about. And so briefly, for a lot of centrists and kind of center-left people, and, and then people on the right who don't want to just come out and say, I think that transgenderism is an affront to nature and so on, their argument is about children and risk. It's about saying, you know, we don't want to be doing procedures to kids, giving kids puberty blockers, um, encouraging identities and experimentation with identities that kids are later going to regret. And then noticing how we have a lot of data on the risks of this stuff. And there are clearly, there are risks. There are people who say regret developing a trans identity and undergoing gender affirming care in whatever form that takes. But the data is that the, the number of people who eventually regret it is relatively small. Um, and comparing that risk to other things that we don't tend to have kind of moral panics about. We don't get like, we don't have moral panics about parents, say, feeding their kids relatively poor diets that have long-term health impacts. We don't have moral panics about, we have moral panics about, say, the, the drugs that we might, the puberty blockers lessening sexual pleasure later in life, but we don't have those same things about circumcision, which is an involuntary medical procedure that has the same kinds of effects. Uh, and, and so the fact that we are pointing to risks in one area as cause for real concern or intervention, but ignoring other risks to children in other areas says that it's not really about the risk. It's instead about the, the identities and the growing cultural acceptance. Um, and this also shows up in the way that we talk about a liberalism coming from the left in these issues. And so I'm thinking about Damon Linker, who's been on this show in the past, has a new 
newsletter, I believe, called Looking Left, which is about liberalism. He's he's been very good about liberalism on the right. Now he's going to turn his attention to liberalism on the left as well, um, where he says that he defines wokeism, which he says needs to be defeated. That's his term, um, as using the commanding heights of culture and cultural institutions to enforce progressive values. And the progressive value, the only examples he gives in this essay are the New York Times contributors writing a letter to the editors of the New York Times, a public letter, criticizing the Times' kind of relentless and mostly negative coverage of transgender issues over the last year or two. Um, and then the the employees of Netflix getting mad at Netflix for doing a comedy special by Dave Chappelle in which he makes fairly offensive if you're transgender, anti-trans jokes, like kind of a punching down sort of thing. And, and again, this is another one of these, there's an unstated assumption here because if you were, if, if Netflix had done a comedy special where they were talking, where it was a white supremacist talking about blacks, making jokes at blacks' expense, or if the New York Times were writing extensively about, well, maybe the Jews are up to something and we should be a little bit concerned, kind of just asking questions about Jewish conspiracy theories, we wouldn't see this as wokeism for the employees to push back on their employers. We would see it as, as justified. But with transgenderism, we see it as wokeism, and I think there the, the unstated assumption is that being racist or being anti-Semitic is just worse than being anti-trans, and that it's not – that anti-trans jokes aren't actually something that should be shamed um, or anti-trans coverage isn't like anti-Semitic coverage. And you can make an argument for that, but it's unstated. It's just it's just assumed. And so I think if I if I take the step back, the thing that has been on my mind is the way that a lot of the people who are saying they're very concerned about the rise of transgender identities and acceptance are not really stating what look like their real reasons, but are instead kind of grasping at proxies for those reasons, sublimated reasons um, that don't get at the core thing, which is just lots of people still hold fairly negative views of trans identities. So there's a lot to unpack there, uh, Aaron, as you like to say uh, in many of your podcasts. I mean, it's, um, you know, I read uh, Damon's piece and I'm largely in agreement with you. I mean, I think there is a, a absolutely a double standard in how we talk about trans issues, uh, which is a fairly, you know, new issue on the horizon compared to other forms of bigotry and, you know, racism, which we have now clearly sort of recognized as such. And, um you know, Damon uh, uses a certain definition of wokeism um, as, um, uh, you know, and he uses it pejoratively, although the term woke actually emerged in black culture as simply like being aware to, um, uh, you know, law enforcement and it's a, or the use of law enforcement. I mean, it was a term I tried to recall 
uh, who uh, who uh, who came up with it. But it was like you don't sleep, you stay awake, you stay awoke because anytime the cops are going to come and get you for no real reason. So it is kind of important to remember the genesis of that term and how it has actually come to be deployed and weaponized on the right. Uh, and there are, I mean, and this is not to say that there are not clear excesses of progressive wokeness. I mean, there are. I was a little surprised by the two examples that Damon chose, uh, more surprised by the Chappelle example than the New York Times coverage example. The New York Times coverage, I mean, I haven't read all their uh, pieces on transgender uh, issues, but I think at least some of what I get is that at least many of them were pretty complex articles and features about the science behind, uh, you know, transgender uh, surgeries or uh, interventions, uh, they did get pushback. I mean, there were two. There was not just one letter. There were two open letters uh, against New York Times. One, uh, existing contributors and previous contributors, about uh, 2,000 of them. And then another of actually trans people themselves. And I have no doubt that, you know, some of our uh, assumptions about um, you know, because trans, I mean, so little is understood about, uh, you know, the inner uh, struggles and travails of transgender uh, folks that I am sure some of our sort of, uh, um, you know, assumptions against them creep into a normal conversation. And that's what came into, you know, that's what crept into the New York Times coverage. Dave Chappelle example to me was more egregious because what Dave Chappelle did and said, as you said, was pretty, pretty pejorative. I mean, it was, you know, you just, you don't need to have any extra sympathy for any group to know that's not how you talk about uh, another group. Uh, so I was a little surprised by that. On the other hand, you know, to the extent that Damon, and this is where I have some sympathy for the critique of both causes, there are quite a few, even though, you know, I think this whole uh, right-wing critique of bookism that they now control the commanding heights of culture, they control academia and they control Hollywood and they control the media. And, you know, they are used these commanding heights to exert uh, pressure on different power nodes to get their way is highly, highly exaggerated. But the part that I have sympathy for is that there often are innocent victims to this woke crusade that the, you know, progressives aren't always sufficiently attuned to. So if I were in Damon's position, the example that I might have used is that of uh, David Shore, who was, uh, you know, who was a policy analyst who at one point simply retweeted the research of a Princeton professor, uh, Omar uh, Wasso, which said that, uh, you know, fewer Democrats will come out to vote. If, and this was in the, by the way, in the wake of the George Floyd Black Lives Matter protest, which I actually participated in. But there was, uh, but this research that shows that uh, fewer Democrats, um, fewer Democrats come out and vote in the election if such protests are violent compa as compared to nonviolent. And David Shore got fired from his job for something like that, which was a pretty. So I mean. You know, there are so there are so many issues to unpack in what you said. There is the issue about wokeism and its excesses. There is the issue of the right weaponizing wokeism. And then there is the issue of trans, you know, how we talk about transgenders. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, I think on the transgender issue, I find Damon to be kind of like the weakest in the examples that he used and the way he's talking about it. And I think, you know, just as many of us regret how we used to talk about our gay friends 20 years ago, I think Dave Chappelle is going to regret how he talked about transgender people 20 years from now. And I think uh, to sort of probe um, what you said, Aaron, uh, yeah, I, mean, I take entirely Shika's point. I think that's absolutely correct, that there often is a kind of time period in which people start to recognize, you know, gee, I... I don't actually have any sort of stronger objection to this or that group of people to whom I'm unused, right? I, I haven't spent a lot of time around fill in the blank. Maybe I have some discomfort. It's a cultural discomfort. And yet I fully agree with their rights uh, to be who they are, to do what they want, to have full equality under the law. And, you know, all of this is without question in my mind, it may still take some time for me to see the various ways in which um, subtle implications of my language may still be a bit thoughtless, um, uh, harmful in, in, in small ways that we all recognize in social settings, right? So uh, that kind of transition goes on, it seems to me, in almost every um, civil rights um, recognition that's gone on in the past decades, how aggressively one points out those contradictions, those failures, those social inadequacies and, and thoughtlessness is always a challenge. And it's always going to be a challenge. Uh, obviously, there's something to be said for pointing it out subtly or more directly uh, in order to be fair to the people who are being discriminated against. And I think we all recognize that. And then there can also be the error of coming down so harshly on a person that it actually causes them to step back from the position that they were perhaps ready to take. And, and actually say, well, you know, no, I'm going to stand by what I originally was implying, and I'm I'm going to double down on it, and then we get, you know, we get worse. Um, uh, I think that's part of. Uh, don't know that that directly, um, I guess, answers your concern. I think it's just part of the dynamic we're seeing, and. It is a difficult transition for some people uh, to make. And um, I think also one thing I would bring up, Aaron, that I think is an interesting question. You may well be right that, for instance, if National Review or another right-wing organization, let's say it's uh, Newsmax, what have you, and I use right-wing, it's a very fuzzy term, right? There, there are definite degrees and distinctions within that. But when they run an article about a child, let's say, who is questioning their gender identity in school, and they talk to a counselor about it, and only months later, the parent finds out inadvertently that their child has this and that they're being, say, referred to by different pronouns, by a different name, a different gender identity in the school, and the parent didn't know that, they feel like there's a parental rights issue. Uh, 
And it may well be the reason that they're focusing so intently on that is because deep down they're uncomfortable with the subject. But I don't know that that necessarily makes the ultimate inquiry itself invalid because I think that's part of what's being debated. It's just how much um, right and control parents have over their children up to the age of uh, becoming adults. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the transgender issue as it concerns minors is really a very, very difficult issue. And it's hard to get right because it's one of those, you know, existential, uh, you know, questions that on one hand, uh, transgender interventions are going to be much more successful before you hit puberty. On the other hand, that's exactly the time when you are least equipped to be making these transformative decisions. And so how you how you discuss this and how you talk about it is extremely difficult. So I actually don't have a problem with debating the science of it and debating the psych psychology of it. What I do have a problem with it is talking about it de dehumanizing terms. You know, the kind of terms that, for instance, Michael Knowles used uh, and we addressed at the Unpopulist uh, very recently when we republished the excerpt from Deidre McCloskey's you know, book and Deirdre is a transgender uh, woman now, but who was a male, but a highly, highly renowned economist. And uh, she talks about her travails. And, uh, you know, so to me, the distinction is, are you talking about these issues in a way that is at least respectful and sensitive uh, to the plight, uh, you know, of the groups involved? Or are you going to be simply a troll and dehumanize them? I think that's kind of like a basic boundary. And I think I agree with you that that boundary is very often lost in uh, discussions by the right. And I'm actually surprised that, uh, you know, Damon find, finds himself agreeing with David Chappelle on this. Um, you know, given that David Chappelle did speak in a pretty dehumanizing fashion. Shika, now let's turn to you. You said you wanted to talk a bit about Ukraine and the 20th anniversary of the Iraq war. Yeah, so this week has been, like you said, the 20th anniversary of the Iraq war. And, um, you know, in the 20 years since then, uh, the most fascinating development, I think, politically, or at least one of them has been the rise of the anti-war right. You know, at the time of the Iraq war, there was an anti-war left, but there wasn't an anti-war right. And uh, now you have this, you know, you have a phenomenon of, uh, you know, this phenomenon. And it's really interesting, you know, how it is positioning itself uh, on Ukraine vis-a-vis -vis the Iraq war. So the right has gone back and revised its view, its position on the Iraq war. And, you know, it now regards it as a hegemonic war. It was in... Uh, you know, instance of American imperialism. And I actually agree with all of that. I mean, I was, uh, you know, at the time the Iraq war happened, I was actually at the Detroit News and I was writing editorials against that war. I don't know, Tom, if you were still there at that time or not. Tom and I are, yeah, Tom and I are colleagues from way back when. Um, and one of the problems with the Iraq war was I was actually in India when it was, you know, it was launched. And I'm watching it with my friends and family in India was really uncomfortable because they were clearly all rooting for America to bear a very heavy cost, militarily, human, 
you know, financially for that war. And their reasoning was that, you know, if America can go and topple, unprovoked a sitting regime without paying a big price, well, where would it stop? Um, and I kind of agreed with that. Uh, but the Ukraine situation is extremely, extremely different. I mean, uh, Ukraine is not the U.S. spreading liberal democracy at gunpoint. Ukraine is clearly an instance when an authoritarian bully has attacked a, the boundaries of a country, which is a fledgling liberal democracy, not a perfect liberal democracy. And yet the anti-war right, weirdly enough, uh, is, is, you know, speaks with great moral authority as if, uh, you know, it's on the pacifist side and it is the one that is, uh, you know, calling out American imperialism. And what you see also is a perfect convergence between the right and the left uh, horseshoe theory. I mean, Noam Chomsky made a statement about how we should learn or something to the effect that Donald Trump was a moral authority on the, you know, on uh, the Ukraine issue because he has criticized the United States and praised Putin uh, and his aggression. And you see some of this echoed in the positions that the Republican candidates or potential candidates, presidential candidates have are taking. Uh, you know, DeSantis, uh, has, who is the, you know, leading candidate after Trump, hasn't gone all MAGA anti-war, but he's come pretty close. He's, it's not clear if he were president, he would continue to support Ukraine. And we are not talking by committing ground troops, nobody really is in favor of that, but just morally and materially. Uh, surprisingly enough, the only one who came to clo came close to making a moral case, you know, against Russia and for Ukraine is Pence. Pence called it, called out Russia as the aggressor. Very few of the other Republican candidates are willing to do that. So I'm just befuddled by this turn on the right that here it is you know, taking this anti-American, pro-authoritarian position in the name of being anti-war uh, and trying to put a patina of morality on that position. So I'm interested in your thoughts. Well, I think one thing that, uh, a couple of things occur to me in what you say. One is that it seems to me that the seeds of what we're seeing now were already present back with the Iraq war. And famously, Pat Buchanan said, this has quagmire written all over it. So in a sense, what Donald Trump has been has been kind of a delivery on the ideas that Pat Buchanan had. He was, and, you know, he was skeptical about immigration. He wanted America to concentrate more on its own interests at home, uh, to define its own interests abroad much more um, rigidly and, and um, uh, essentially be less internationalist in its thinking and its scope. And so I, I think that's part of what we're seeing. I think another part of what we're seeing, maybe two things that contribute to it, and then I'll happily cede the floor. One is that, um, you know, that war went very badly. And uh, there was a lot of um, disenchantment with the uh, people who ran that war, because in fact, the basis for American support, uh, and I was, I was doing survey research at the time, I was working with the NBC Wall Street Journal Survey of Public Opinion, and what you saw is that people supported this war on the assumption that there were weapons of mass destruction. 
those never materialized. And because they did not, you had a great deal of disaffection, disenchantment, I believe, un, among many Americans. So I, I believe it became easier then for skepticism of the kind that Buchanan was expressing to be held more broadly by Republicans. And I think, finally, the simple fact that this happened on Joe Biden's watch and that he and Democrats came out in favor of it in our very polarized political atmosphere kind of nudged a number of people on the right to say, okay, we've got to come out and smack this in the nose. And I think that's part of what we're seeing, too. Yeah. Uh, no, I I agree with your, uh, I mean, your the, your history is absolutely accurate. I mean, the seeds of this were sowed by Pat Buchanan. Um, but, you know, the issue here is not so much Iraq, but it's bearing on Ukraine, right? One can, without any contradiction, take the position that the U.S. is not in a position to do anything on Ukraine. Maybe perhaps that it shouldn't even do anything on Ukraine. What surprises me is that they feel that the U.S. is in the wrong here and Putin is in the right. And this is a position that Chomsky takes, right? That, you know, that, you know, and they are bending over backward to come up with ways to justify U.S. as the, you know, sort of like the malign force over here. I mean, there are all kinds of theories about NATO expansion and there's a grain of truth to that. There is Alex Jones has even suggested that uh, the U.S. was funding some kind of a bioweapons lab in Ukraine that which forced Russia's hands. I mean, it's like it is this inability to make moral distinctions and in fact, not just make not make moral distinctions, but make the wrong distinctions. That is, you know, really striking uh, to me here. Yeah, I guess I want to pick up on something both of you said, because, Tom, you talked about kind of the partisan nature of this response. And I think that is I think that's the crux of it. So going back to Donald Trump as the anti-war candidate, there were a lot of people who saw him as the anti-war candidate. And granted, when your opponent is Hillary Clinton, it's very easy to look like an anti-war candidate, no matter how pro-war you happen to be. But it always seemed obvious to me that Trump was not anti-war. What he was anti was the stuff his predecessors had done, that everyone who held the office before him was an idiot, had messed things up. So any projects that they had that were ongoing were mistakes, but that he was also incredibly belligerent. I mean, all of his comments about how we're going to go in and get the oil, we need to evade to get the oil. Like he was, I'm surprised he didn't start more wars. He was never an anti-war guy. It reminds me of very quickly a quote of Virginia Postrails where she said, he's not opposed to war. He's just opposed to losing wars, right? That was just perfect there. <laughs> and then the other portion of this is, and you mentioned Virginia, I think I, I said this I brought this point up in the podcast that we did with her, um, is that the culture war has basically eaten everything. And, and so it in that context, it makes sense that the right would latch on to Putin as someone who, either in some extreme versions of the right, is someone we should absolutely support – um, or kind of soften it into he's he's a victim here because the right has come to view Putin. First, there was the the whole Russia hoax 
thing where that that kind of got the that turned the right away from being super anti-Russia, right, and turned them towards being more sympathetic to Russia because the left suddenly was very anti-Russia. Um, but also, Putin has taken on this role similar to Viktor Orban as a great defender of trad Western white masculine Christian values. Um, and so they see Putin's Russia as a as as kind of a North Star in a way they do Viktor Orban's Hungary um, for this far-right national conservative kind of views. And so that has softened dramatically their position on Putin. Um, and and that's and that's why you see a lot of the framing of Ukraine as actually this kind of decadent and corrupt place that's been overrun with Nazism and so on. And Russia is the white male Christian defense against that. I th- yeah, I think that that point really can't be uh, understated. I mean, there is clearly, you know, sort of like an alt-right to Putin pipeline uh, in some ways. Uh, you know, uh, Putin love has been a very big part of sort of the fringe right now for even before Trump, I would say, and then Trump came and legitimized it in a way that uh, any other, you know, presidential uh, president may not have done. And uh, so now here you are, uh, you know, just one year before the next election, and all the presidential candidates on the Republican side are kind of playing on this very different moral terrain, which was established fully or you know, during Trump's time. And so you have this very peculiar uh, instance when Republican candidates can't make up their mind whether they are, you know, for this authoritarian or against this authoritarian and what exactly the U.S. interest might be in standing up against him. And it does seem to me that part of what we see is a legitimate, uh, in some cases, inquiry into what the United States did in the past um, as to whether it was wise or not. Questions of NATO expansion, questions of where boundaries were drawn, all of these things could be legitimately critiqued as being wise or unwise. You might conclude they're unwise. The, I think, mistake is to turn around and say, and therefore that legitimates, legitimizes what we saw Vladimir Putin do in February last year. And I think that is, you know, that's part of the flaw here, the sense that being politically incorrect about just how well the United States behaved, therefore, can be extended to this idea that, hey, now it's just perfectly okay if he wages a war of aggression against Ukraine because he really would like his boundaries to be different. He would really feel more secure if he had the Crimea and some sort of uh, land bridge um, that gives him a, a greater ability to defend himself uh, through his navy. And all of that question of trade and what have you, it's a separate issue. And sure, of course, go back and critique Americans, America's decisions and its internationalism if you want, but that's separate from this issue. Tom, we'll turn back to domestic issues with you to talk a bit about qualified immunity. Yeah, qualified immunity sounds like it has to be just one of the most 
incredibly dull subjects you could imagine, but in fact it has really heated up, and there's a good reason for that. Um, for those of you who've been following the unpopulist closely on this issue, you know that it's be it's become um, highly discussed because of some high-profile incidents, George Floyd's murder at the hands of Minneapolis police, um, the question of Tyree Nichols' beating and uh, death in police custody three days later. Uh, both of those incidents obviously raised a great deal of concern, and we've, we've seen others prior to that, uh, about police brutality, uh, questions of whether they are acting uh, cavalierly in their use of force. So why is it the qualified immunity is a big deal? Let me just talk about that briefly before I talk about what's happening. Um, there are really two ways in American law that you're going to go about trying to right a wrong when something's gone wrong. One of them is through criminal law. Okay, Someone looks and says, hey, what you just did is a crime under the law and a member of the government, a district attorney, a federal prosecutor, is going to then bring charges against you, go into a criminal court of law, and try to find you guilty. When they do, they may put you in jail, they may fine you. All of this happens at the behest of the state. That's one way that you hold people accountable. Another is through civil law, and we're familiar with this. It's lawsuits. We see that kind of thing. In that case, it's not that the state intervenes. It just adjudicates. So I, as an individual, say, you did something wrong to me. I think I can prove it in court. I hire a lawyer. I sue you. You say, no, I'm 100% convinced that what I did was right, and I'm going to defend myself. We go into court, and I try to get some sort of, some sort of uh, compensation for the harm that you did to me. Those are the two ways. So what we've seen with George Floyd, what we've seen with Tyree Nichols, is that immediately criminal charges were brought. What we need to know, what we need to recognize is that, yeah, that can happen when somebody catches a really brutal case on camera and it goes viral. Then you may get local prosecutors, federal prosecutors stepping in to discipline police, but that is not the way it usually happens. What usually happens is the prosecutors have limited time and resources and they also have in many cases, a close affiliation with the police in the area. They work with them on a regular basis, and it's kind of awkward for them. It's not their first impulse to go kick the tires on these things and then dig down and send somebody to jail. So the reason that qualified immunity is such a big issue is that the real hope for keeping police disciplined and keeping police departments concerned about following good procedure and adhering to the law, all of that comes about because of the possibility of citizen lawsuits, right? You beat me up, I go to hospital, it hurts, I spend time away from work, I sue you for compensation. If you kill me, then my family sues you for compensation. Those lawsuits commonly get blocked by qualified immunity. And what qualified immunity is sounds very reasonable on the surface. It's that only if a police officer or another government official has acted against clearly established law, has clearly violated the Constitution, are they going to be held accountable. But as a practical matter, in the courtroom, what that means is you have to be able, when you sue that police officer, to point to a case that is almost exactly identical to your own, in which 
somebody's constitutional rights have been held to be violated. And it has to happen within the same federal district that you're in. So, you know, if you're in, if you're in Tennessee, it doesn't help to point to California. And so the, the problem then becomes it's almost impossible to sue. And that means that in so many instances of gross violations of rights, there's nobody there to pressure a police officer, to pressure a police department to get rid of bad officers, to make the bad officers get out of the profession. And this is demoralizing for police. It denies victims restitution, and it makes you know, really ultimately a mockery of constitutional rights because you can't enforce them. Someone may be able to point and say, well, that was obviously a, a violation of your rights, but it doesn't really mean much. So we had Congress trying to step in and do something about that after the George Floyd incident. There was the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, and it passed the House, went to the Senate, died in part over qualified immunity. Now with the beating of Tyree Nichols, there was hope that it might be revived. And it's clear from the news reports that you know, President Biden has said, yes, you know, he would like to see this. We have Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey and Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina talking again, uh, according to reports, but it's not clear, right? We've written at the unpopulous that this would be a good thing to do. This would be a good time to look at it. And there is some hope. And there is, but we're, we're not seeing the kind of movement that would like to see in order to know that something's going to happen. Right? Tom, what's the holdup? Who is the holdup here? Well, it's hard to say, especially because I'm not, you know, on the floor in Congress watching all this happen. The few people that I've been able to reach out to who are tracking this aren't really sure themselves. What we know is that in the past, there was a sense that um, Republicans in the Senate became uncomfortable with some of the language that was being suggested for enforcing, in particular, lawsuits against, against police. There was a debate over whether it should involve um, only those instances of grievous bodily harm or death, not instances where something's stolen, where I'm incarcerated for a few weeks, lose my job and then get out, but have no recourse. Um, so that was a stumbling block. It's likely enough that I know there was a kind of reversal on the Republican side about their comfort with disciplining police in this way. And, you know, in a sense, it's not completely a shock because there's a, a sense always that there's this possibility of frivolous lawsuits and the fear that a policeman who is making a split second decision, life or death, is going to suddenly be sued and second guessed by people who have the benefit of reflection, and looking at all the facts. But as a practical matter, qualified immunity does not involve that at all. If it's split second, if it's heat of the moment, it is subject to a completely different standard called you know, kind of what's reasonable? What would the reasonable person do in this case? And if you reach for a gun that's empty and pointed at a policeman and you get shot, no one's going to hold that he did something unreasonable there. So that defense would remain. Qualified immunity doesn't touch that. What qualified immunity deals with is those cases where a court would look and say, well, gee, that doesn't look reasonable. That looks like a constitutional violation. But there's qualified immunity. You can't point to an exact case that's been adjudicated like this before. So we're going to throw it out, even though 
we actually look at it and think, yeah, that was unconstitutional and you were harmed. So, um, I mean, so are you saying that the concerns about the qualified immunity bill that was initially floated after the George Floyd incident were reasonable? So there were reasonable considerations that stymied or is this just politics? I mean, you know, uh, Republicans are famously against unions, except for, uh, you know, police unions and firefighter unions, right? So how much of that is going on? Just Republican liking law, law and order and in law enforcement agencies. I can't get in, you know, again, I'm not present on the scene, so I haven't heard the arguments they're making behind closed doors. Um, you know, it, I, I think it's likely enough that there's some good faith um, misunderstanding a concern and but I, I, do do i believe that there are political factors well, yeah, like, sure it's congress it's the senate i'm going to guess that politics is involved and that you know that connection between uh, the police community and republicans it sure is going to make it harder for them to see their way clear i think there's also an angle to to restate myself that the culture war eats everything to this because of the place that a police hold in American culture has has diverged quite a lot in a way that mirrors, you know, prior to the Vietnam War, there wasn't a lot of criticism of the U.S. military, like publicly out there criticism. And if you did that, you were suspected of being a red or something worse, right? Um, but the Vietnam War like deeply changed that to the point where people – trusted leaders in military situations less than they had in the past. The police long held that kind of, they were pillars of the community, the cops walking the beat, who knew you, the Norman Rockwell paintings of cops and so on. And that has begun to shift, but it has shifted along largely culture war lines, that the left has become much more skeptical of cops, much less trusting of them. The right sees them as our guys and the people holding, you know, like holding civilization together. The thin blue line flags are exactly that. Um, and and because it's a culture war issue, staking out any sort of nuanced position makes you look suspicious to your tribe because you might actually be a member of the other tribe. So that's making it harder. And then I think the other big thing is police still wield extraordinary power through their unions on the one hand, which can then bring great pressure on politicians either running for office or running for re-election, um, but also in the media. You know, it's like kind of a running joke in criminal justice reform people how much like media – like journalists act as just stenographers for – police departments, just like without any sort of critical thinking, repeating whatever an officer told them as as truth. And, and that makes it so that the American public gets a particular perspective on this that I think then plays even more into this divide because you see people on the left marching in the street and being really critical of cops. and But then even your mainstream press is kind of presenting the police view as the official and right one, um, and then the unions themselves are, it's, again, it's almost impossible to break the strength of those unions because on the one hand, the right loves cops, and on the other hand, the left loves unions and particularly public sector 
unions. And so the police unions can just kind of ride those two attitudes to extraordinary power. And then anytime anyone steps forward and says, we need to reform this, you can see like what happened to reform DAs in various cities. Cops basically stopped working in a lot of cases and some petty crime went up and then they were like, look, petty crime's going up. And the voters were like, oh no, petty crime is going up. We need to get a law and order DA back in. Um, and so I think it's just their cops are such a charged cultural thing that it's really hard to get movement on. And anyone who steps out of line on their particular side can be punished pretty severely. You know, Aaron, I think that's a great observation. I would and I would I would say that there's really kind of a tragedy going on here. I mean, it's it's just genuinely sad because this is a nuanced and difficult problem to solve, right? You've seen the uh, public's view of the police declining. This is not something, you know, in the past they were always well viewed. And then if you look at survey research, it has just been dropping and dropping and dropping. Morale has been dropping amongst police departments. Uh, in Minneapolis, there was recently a suit. This is post-George Floyd. They've actually dropped below the number of police officers that are mandated by their charter, their city charter. And there is so much violence, people are leaving the area. This is demoralizing to police. And yet, at the same time, there's a very demoralizing aspect to, to the police of having these grossly negligent officers being employed and then being found out, discovered, hurting their reputation, hurting the reputation of policing itself, that also is extremely demoralizing. They're having trouble with recruitment. The numbers are falling. The morale is falling. People are retiring early. And somehow you're going to have to fill those shoes. And that's not an easy thing to do. Yeah, except that, you know, that's correct. But I think, um, you know, police departments are so resistant to reform. I mean, simple things like sharing, you know, data, transparency. Uh, they will not share statistics about uh, police misconduct, which they actually some very often compile. Sometimes they don't, but they will not share it with anyone. They And so there is sort of, you know, this sort of, in insularity and sort of like this, you know, fraternity within the police department, which they enforce and they are wedded to, which makes it very hard for police reform to happen, even as they recognize what bad apples are doing to them, right? So, uh, yeah, anyways, I guess we are not going to sort this out today. But, you know, to your point, when I, I mean, I like I mentioned after the George Floyd killing, I actually went on a Black Lives uh, a Matter, Black Lives Matter march in Southfield, Michigan. And it was actually led by a black police officer of the Southfield Police Department. So, uh, you know, clearly there was momentum then. Um, you know, at the grassroots level, even within police departments, somehow, you know, it all just came to naught. Yeah, and I, I do not, in what I was mentioning earlier, I was trying to provide, I think, some of the nuance that I think is very much there and that I think Aaron correctly points out is just cut down to the ground as if it doesn't exist in the culture war arguments over this. And that, that to me is really a tragedy. It's a shame because, you know, safety in your home, safety in your personal um, 
property and all of those things, safety in your car, these are fundamental to um, you know not only our constitutional rights but to the quali quality of life. And uh, getting this right is is not easy, and it's very very important. At the same time, there's no question that um, the police departments have been in a position of power um, in terms of their control of information, their control of the narrative, their control of uh, uh, what kinds of disciplines they're subject to. And all of that um, has had a very corrosive effect on the behavior uh, of a lot of people in police departments. And it, that, too, is terrible because the only thing, of course, that stops you from reinforcing that behavior is just your individual code. And that individual code is going to be stressed repeatedly in a job like policing, where you do make very difficult decisions. Uh, where people close to you, your fellow officers, may be threatened. And of course you have a strong desire to defend them because you know they would do the same for you in this position. So you're, you're constantly faced with moral quandaries. And when a system protects you and others as much as this current system does, you're going to get some good people doing some not-too-pretty things. And that, you know, that's, that's the shame of it. Thank you for listening to Zooming In at the Unpopulist. If you enjoy this show, please take a moment to review us in Apple Podcasts, and also check out Reimagining Liberty, our sister podcast, The Unpopulist, where I explore the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. Zooming In is produced by Landry Ayers and is a project of The Unpopulist. Unpopulist.